0: This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. In 2007, the District of Columbia introduced a pay for performance plan, or what's often called a merit pay plan. The plan was introduced only after intensive bargaining with the teachers union for the District of Columbia, and after considerable public controversy. Many years later, uh, Mathematica, a nationally respected research firm, Uh, conducted a study which has just recently been released that evaluates the effectiveness of this performance pay plan, looking specifically at student achievement in the District of Columbia as compared to other parts of the country in the years following the introduction of the reform. The results are stunning given the fact that the merit pay plan was widely condemned at the time you would have thought that probably it showed that things went downhill. On the contrary, Mathematica reports substantial gains in student performance in reading and math at the fourth grade level and in math at the eighth grade level, though it found no gains in reading among eighth graders. So I'm really privileged to have with me today uh, to discuss the evaluation and to discuss the whole events that unfolded back in 2007, two of the key figures who hammered out the collective bargaining agreement uh, that made uh, the merit pay or performance pay plan happen. First, I have George Parker, who was at the time the head of the Washington chapter of the American Federation of Teachers, and second, I have Michelle Ree, who was the chancellor of the DC public school system, and is the person who Develop the plan for the communities and the teacher organizations consideration. So thank you, George, and thank you, Michelle, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks for having us. us. Well, George, let's begin with your thoughts on this evaluation. Uh, uh, how how do you interpret these findings? What what was the what was there about this new way of doing things that seems to have had a pretty substantially positive long-term effect
1: well I think one is that the the reform measures that that we agreed on were student focused and teacher focused which I think is I, I had negotiated and been engaged in contract negotiations for probably at that time over 20 years This was the first time that I think we were focused more on children than ever before. There were some very difficult negotiations because it was predominantly a contract for change. I think the two centerpieces, one would be the performance pay. Um, The second would be the teacher evaluation process, and if I had to say a third, I think the teacher transfer policy and the uh, reduction in seniority as being the main focus and the main criteria that we use for teacher transfers or for teacher um, ripping or reduction in forcing, etc. I think the other key pieces were a commitment and a courage uh, to do something different and to follow through with what we felt was right. I think that changing the culture, that was a tough one, but I think we changed the culture. I think we might could have done it a little differently, but uh, we did change the culture. I th- and, and I think that played a key role. I could see teachers beginning to feel their accountability part of it a lot more significantly. There was some pushback because it was a big change that we had never had a system before where we had an evaluation process that took into consideration both components, teaching and learning. All prior evaluations simply focused on teaching. You'd have a principal or supervisor come in and observe you with your class for 15, 20, 25 minutes and then go. But there was no connection to the actual learning process. I think that the new evaluation process, it was the first evaluation process that actually linked student performance to some degree to teach evaluation, which I think kind of completed the loop that education is about teaching and learning. And this finally brought in the learning component. There was controversy about the percentage of student performance uh, that was initially used, 50%. But the concept, I think, was very, very good, uh, that it, for the first time, linked the learning part with the teaching part. And I think that carried out. And there was a commitment both on the financial side and on the change side I think all of those things played a part in this becoming a success. Teachers were teaching more, uh, they were teaching a little differently, but accountability was a part of it. And for the first time, I think that was a major change.
0: So, Michelle, how how would you respond to this question? Uh, We see some years later some substantial improvement We see a lot of controversy at the time. We see a lot of people questioning what was being done there. Uh, What was it that made it seem to work?
2: (laughs) Um, It's interesting because, you know, I think since I left D.C., I've been in lots of conversations where people are saying, okay, well, you know, what you did worked. How can we replicate it? What were the pieces that were most important? I would 100% agree with George that I think, uh, you know, potentially the largest factor was how we changed um, the way that teachers were valued, recognized, supported, compensated, uh, evaluated. with just a, a recognition of the fact that of all of the in-school factors that exist, teacher quality is the number one factor that can have an impact on teacher performance and our, our desire to really sort of change how people perceived that um, through the contract, through the um, performance pay structures uh, was successful. Um, But there were lots of other things that, you know, played into that. So, you know, the governance structures, we moved away from an elected school board and to mayoral control Uh, and not just, you know, any mayor, but we had, I think, one of the most courageous politicians of our time, Adrian Fenty, um, leading that effort. Um, I think the resources and the resource allocation, we were able to close a significant number of schools thereby reallocating those dollars into a fewer number of schools which just means that every everybody was better resourced um, we brought in external philanthropic dollars uh, for the pay for performance system um, at the outset which was you know hugely beneficial we were a, a city-state so we weren't a district that had to you know, negotiate things and then worry about what the state policy was, right? We were one in the same. That was super unusual. And then we had a a choice dynamic in the city where we had a significant number of, of uh, students in the charter school sector. Um, we also had a federally funded voucher program. Uh, and because of those dynamics, it sort of led... You know, even the people who didn't want anything to change sort of say, "Okay, wait a second. Well, if we're not, we don't do something soon, then there, ten years from now, there will be no DC public schools." So I think all of those things kind of uh, added to the effectiveness of uh, that. I think has led to the long-term gains because those are what we did were really sort of systemic um, shifts to how the district operated
0: so why haven't other school districts done the same thing so given given the picture and given the fact that people began to see that over the long run and and given the fact that this program is still in effect i mean this has never been taken back it's never been renegotiated and the whole idea has been dropped it's still part of what is being done in the district of columbia so why aren't other places doing the same thing
2: yeah it was interesting because one of the things i read it in the study was that the impacts of what we put in place were greater than things like you know success for all and class size reduction right which you know 30 years ago that those were like the reforms right and um a huge number of dollars were going into that so if, if the gains were larger through what we did, why, why don't we see more of a prol- proliferation? Um, I'd say uh, two, a few things. One is, like I said, all the stars were aligned. So all of those circumstances that I talked about, those are very difficult to replicate, number one. And I'd say number two was, you know, if I were to have to identify two things that were the most important um, to the change, it was Adrian Fenty and George Parker. You don't, you rarely have a politician like Adrian Fenty who's willing to, you know, put everything online to, to fix the schools. Who had such a, a laser like, tunnel vision focus on the schools and was willing to back me 100%. And then you, you had George who, you know, there were... Most of the union leaders in the country at the time were just, you know, they felt like their job was just to say no to everything the superintendent wanted to do. And not that I didn't get my fair share of no's from, from George, but, um, you know, to to have a union leader who was willing to step outside of the box, step outside of the, the norms and the expectations, to take a lot of heat from his fellow union leaders um, and his members, to think about a completely different paradigm was incredibly unusual.
0: So George yes uh, why hasn't this idea spread is it is it really union opposition or is there more to it than that?
1: I think the union opposition is one component but I also think that it is the difficulty around change this is t- it's tough this change is tough especially when you talk about systemic change. say when you have 140 schools or 120 schools and you are trying to come up with change that will impact all 120 in a positive way, it's difficult. So you got the, the difficulty number one. And then let me start at the top. One of the difficulties today, especially in cities and urban districts where you have school boards. It's politics. I, I, I was a part of the politics in D.C. when we had a school board, and that was you fight at the school board level to stop those things that you don't want to see going to uh, effect, even if those things may be good for kids, but could be very challenging for teachers. And, and that was one of the goals, is that, look, when we say this is good for kids, and we'll put kids first. But in reality, we were putting kids first as long as it was not at the expense of a teacher's
0: job. And those things are sort of like what, seniority rights? Well,
1: seniority, some of the things that we addressed, as I look back, I, I I, say, it was, there was some difficult days. From a union, from my, perspective as a union leader, seniority is the Holy Grail. You don't, you don't bother to touch seniority. Um, teacher evaluation, as I said, it was the first time we actually linked the learning part that goes with teaching and learning, where teachers were held accountable and uh, a way that student performance also was a part of teacher evaluation. I think the, the, the question that people had and most of the controversy that I received around it was the percentage. But still there was an effort to link uh, teaching with actual learning. I think that was important. That's difficult to do, Mm -hmm. especially in urban districts where you have union contracts, where you have cultures of status quo. And I think that one of the key pieces here was mirror control is that there was one person calling shots. So all you had to do was to come to some type of agreement with that person and you could get it done. I had been uh, working with the union for a long time and pretty much things that we wanted to do or things that we didn't want done, we simply used politics to stop it. And that was that we had board members that we had supported We simply say the superintendent wants to do something that we are not going to buy into. We supported you. We need you not to support this because the board had the power, not the superintendent. Once we went to mayoral control, again, that was a key part. You had one individual that could say yes or no, and that was what Adrian Fenty was. And so that set the stage for Michelle for change And they put me in a situation that for the first time I really had to give change a very, very good look and an opportunity because I had no blockers. The Board of Education was gone. I'd have anyone I could go to to block change. I think it's difficult because politics has become very prevalent in education. And, and, And it's reasonable to understand it, right? If you are elected, a part of your goal is to get re-elected, for the most part. And getting re-elected means you have to have money, you have to have the support of those who are willing to support your campaign, and that's where we come in as the union. We support your campaign. It's no different than it is running for Congress or anything else. Politics get in the way sometimes of good decision-making. So a lot of that happens because when the union doesn't want it, board members who are beholden to the unions— and I was a union leader who who enjoyed board members being beholden to me then those board members don't move as quickly to implement the kind of reforms that the union may be opposed to i think building a culture is tough and in order to do this you got to build a culture you got to be very clear to your people in terms of why why this needs to be done And you have to have support for all of those who have the authority to approve it, to provide the resources that are necessary to do it. And that is different. And then finally, I think the reason that it hasn't been done is just change is difficult.
0: So I think one of the things that made change possible here, and I've been listening and reading about the whole undertaking, one of the things that struck me is you gave teachers a choice. Teachers could say, okay, I want this new... To be evaluated, I know I'm going to have a chance to make a lot more money. My salary will go up much more quickly if I do that. But then I don't have to do it. Mm -hmm. I can stick with the old system. Can you tell me how many went to the new system and how many stayed with the old system? and How important was that for getting the whole thing accomplished?
2: So... um Basically what you're referring to is the fact that when we put the pay for performance system in place, we essentially, and this was this was 100% George sort of saying, look, you have a bunch of teachers who came into this system with a certain set of expectations. You can't just, you know, do a 180 on them and send them in this different direction because that's not what they signed up for. And that logically made sense. So the compromise was to have two tracks, a red track and a green track. The red track was if you wanted to continue to be paid basically on the traditional sort of step increases, right, you got to keep your protections for the most part or there was the green track which was performance based you had to basically give up your your tenure or your, your your the sort of seniority and tenure kind of constructs and in exchange you would be able to earn a whole lot more money so Um, If you were a high-achieving teacher um, teaching in a low-performing school or in a high-need subject area, you could be paid almost twice as much in the new system as you were in the old system. And so having that choice was critical for for George. The one tweak that we made was to say, but all new teachers coming into the system would automatically go on green. Uh, And so I think that was a big piece to the puzzle of kind of making people who were very uncomfortable with change like a little bit more open to it and part of it was about just actually executing it right so people who did not like the pay for performance system would say to their colleagues look they're just doing this to get rid of you. You're a senior teacher, you're a veteran, you get paid more. They're just trying to bring in young people who are cheaper. So this is just a ploy. They're telling you you're gonna make more money, but really they're just trying to fire you, right? And so we had some teachers who, effective teachers, who chose not to go onto the green system. They wanted to stay on red. And then, you know, a year would pass by or two years would pass by, and they'd look up and they'd say, wait a second, my colleague down the hall, who's also a 15-year veteran, um, she's still here, but now she paid for her daughter's wedding and has a brand new car and went to Puerto Rico on vacation. Now I'm just sitting here in my hoopty, like, what, was I, what am I thinking, right? So over time, once people, I think, saw how it was executed and implemented, saw that it was fair, that it was being modified based on the needs, et cetera, more and more people were comfortable Adopting it. I think when we started it was more than 60 percent, 65 maybe percent went on green if I'm not mistaken. I think
1: when we we modified it remember after the green sessions we went back and we did the paid performance piece as an additional piece on the the track. Uh, where all teachers got a... Now, the new teachers came in right. on the separate track, but then all the veteran teachers, there was a good pay raise. There was a 21% yeah. pay raise, so I think... That's
0: got to be something that was big deal. Yes. before oh, getting. absolutely. That, that,
1: that made it a lot more acceptable to teachers. That is like, look, before you talk to me about performance pay, give me a very good base pay, mm-hmm. and I give Michelle credit for that. I mean, the base pay increase took D.C. teachers from number six in the region. This is base. You didn't have to earn performance pay in order to go from number six to number one in this area. And we had some very, very um, wealthy people in this area, some high-end schools. Yeah. When you look at Fairfax County, Montgomery County, Arlington, and etc., we still went from six to one in terms of pay. So I think given that, putting that real strong base pay uh, in there initially made it a lot more acceptable for teachers to say, okay, we will also, we can accept this pay for performance, and the pay for performance made sense. It, it dealt with your evaluation, right, if you had an exceeds expectation, which is equivalent to an outstanding evaluation, you could earn $5,000 extra. but. If you also had an outstanding evaluation and you taught at a a school that had a high rate of uh, reduced lunch students, a low-performance school, you could get another uh, $5,000 for working at a a low-income school, for lack of a better word. And then if you taught in a high-needs area, like mathematics, special education, you could also pick up another $5,000. I can't remember the fourth one right now but in the end, you could pick up and you could make an additional $20,000 performance bonus annually by being an outstanding teacher. And there are teachers who love that piece of it, but it didn't threaten teachers who didn't get there. So even if you were a teacher who did not achieve the performance bonus, you still were number one in the area in terms of teacher salaries. I think all of those components came together to make this happen and make it a so
0: success. what's the lesson that we should draw from this experience for the post-COVID era so we're in this new era we've gone through a period where we see student performances falling by you know about as much as what you saw the gains that came out of the reforms that you were introducing so we don't know what the results are for DC but if they're it, like what's been happening in other places around the country. It's got to be a very big concern. But we do have a lot of federal money on the yes. table. And so districts have a lot more resources than they usually have. And it's temporary. You know, it's going to be sort of like what you had at that time. You had temporary resources that you could use to really transform a system. What are the lessons that you would apply to the current situation, Michelle?
2: So I would say that money, good money after bad is something that you have to be careful about. Um, And so, you know, money that's being infused into the system and is just, you know, filling holes or um, for like one-time projects that then are just gonna have to be rolled back after the money disappears, um, you know, is not going to be as impactful as if there is a plan for how the the temporary money is going to be utilized over a period of time, and then how are you going to um, sustain that once those dollars are gone? And that is one of the things that we did in DC. So we had not federal, but um, uh, philanthropic dollars that came in, and we created a five-year plan to say, okay, these philanthropic dollars are going to come in, but to help with the pay for performance system, but in the long run, we have to be able to sustain this on the sort of public budgets. Um, and so we, we utilized a number of strategies to ensure that that could happen. We had modeled it out, I think, over a five year period, but even after just three years, we were able to, to fully uh, fund those initiatives through through the traditional budget. So I think that, you know, is, is, a, is a, uh, an important point Um, that could be helpful for where we are now is like for school districts for the federal government to be thinking about how these dollars can be leveraged for the kinds of sort of dramatic changes that are needed
0: so can you use these dollars for merit pay
2: i mean i'm not in the weeds enough to know but i i imagine i don't think that any restrictions as, as as far as i know have been put on these dollars i think the ability to do it from the you know federal government probably is there. I think though that you know any district can not just if you're in a collective bargaining agreement you not only can you not just pay teachers more because you want to it's actually uh, <laughs> it goes counter to collective bargaining right um, so that's not allowable unless you get the union support on it.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I I think after the pandemic we're in even more of a critical situation than we were in 2010 and i mean around the country students are behind i think the first thing is more that we need is a change in thinking i think that if we're going to make a difference right now we first have to change our mindset and be open to change the same procedures and and public schools are good at this no matter how much money you get, you just simply expand what you're doing, as opposed to creating new things and new ideas and meeting new challenges. The lost in achievement for our children during the pandemic, we are not gonna solve that problem by doing what we've been doing, just saying, well, we got more money so let's just expand what we've already been doing kids were already behind especially black and brown kids kids of color you're not going to solve the problem by employing the same techniques that we used all along. we're going to have to be open to change and that means all of the stakeholders parents teachers union leaders all are going to have to be open to new concepts and new ways in which we can bring our students up and keep going. I think technology is gonna have to be a big part of that. I think that most school districts are struggling right now with how to do this, because if we thought kids were individually different and had different needs prior to the pandemic, that has even become Mm -hmm. more existent after the pandemic. And that in order for us to really reach the individual needs of students, all school districts are going to have to learn how to incorporate technology in a very useful way. If there was one positive, educational positive thing I think that came out of the pandemic, it was that schools were forced to move to virtual learning and incorporate technology into learning way before most schools would have done mm-hmm. it. So. Now that we've had to do this, I think two things happened. Parents saw, number one, how unprepared we were as as a public school district to deal with educating children in the middle of a pandemic. But they also experienced, here's a new concept, that we can go virtual if we have to. Now I'm saying, rather than saying, wait until you have to go virtual. Take what we learned from the virtual experiences in the pandemic and just add that and incorporate it with what we already do every day in the classroom. That's true individualization. And if we get the kind of software packages that we need, we can truly use technology to individualize instruction. That's a different way of thinking. That's going to require a lot of preparedness, right? On the teacher's part, on the leader's part, on the union's part, because how do you? Evaluate teachers. How do you provide the necessary resources for teachers who may just work online? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with having t- t- teachers who can work from home technologically or don't have to come five days a week? It means if we use that money to expand the offerings, right, not just more of the same offerings, but expand the new offerings. That kids well, use Another
0: technology. thing that, uh, George, that's that's part of this is parents are much more aware of what's going on yes. in school because of, yeah. of the pandemic. That's and a positive. I know you, Michelle, had yeah. a lot of, uh, you went to Students First, which was a whole idea of getting families much yes. more engaged in the schools. Do you think there is a new opportunity to expand that and to achieve a better connection between families and schools than existed in the past?
2: Absolutely, I think uh, one of the another good thing of the pandemic. Maybe, maybe there are not a, a lot, but I do think that it gave parents and families a different level of appreciation for how hard yeah. it is to be a teacher, because lots of parents turned into to to teachers, right? And I had a a lot of friends who were like, oh my goodness, I don't know how teachers do this every day for six hours a day. I can barely do it for, you know, a couple of hours. Um, So I think seeing that and having appreciation for how how difficult it is, but also seeing some of the shortcomings um, that parents and families experienced as well is an opportunity to to rally folks around education in a way that probably wouldn't have been possible before the pandemic.
0: Well, thank you, Michelle. And thank you, George, for joining me on the Education Exchange. I have been speaking with George Parker, former head of the Washington chapter of the American Federation of Teachers, and Michelle Reeve, former chancellor of the DC Public Schools. And I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new podcast, which you can see on the Education Next website. It's released every Monday at noon Eastern time.